Lord, I love you. I think you're amazing. You're beautiful. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for this movement of unity, all centered around prayer, longing for your son to return. Thank you even for just the heart posture and the vision that these men carry so well into the nations. Thank you for what you're doing in our city, what you have done. Thank you for all those that continue to come together. And Father, as we lift up your word right now, I ask that you glorify your word and glorify Jesus tonight and help me to speak. Amen. Um, grab your Bibles on your way down too, and you may be seated. Um, in our house of prayer, we've been going through like a reset. So if I say IHOPKC reset, um, how many of you, just by show of hands, know what I'm talking about right off the bat? Great, three, three or four or five. Um, I'm not going to take too much time to explain that. They've been in, in a reset since last fall that we've been following closely with because it's been uh, something that the Lord's been stirring in, in our house of prayer for about a year and a half, two years. I remember being at the Global Leadership Summit before uh, the One Thing Conference and meeting leader after leader after leader after leader who was experiencing the same thing in their house of prayer or in their church um, as far as just the renewed focus on simple things that we tend to forget because we over-spiritualize it and strip it of its practicality, things like the first commandment, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and uh, focusing on things like that, focusing on family. And then just renewing the vision for the urgency of end-time voices has been a part of this. But for IHOP, the family component was a new component for them. Um, a couple years ago, my wife and I started... My wife was the middle singer, by the way. Uh, I lean on her voice a lot because my voice is uh, extraordinarily average. And so uh, we started traveling with Corey Stark's team based out of Kansas City and going to different nations, planning houses of prayer. Uh, when we started the House of Prayer, this June will be five years here in the city. We're like, I'm a mega introvert. My wife's a mega introvert. The House of Prayer ministry, just by virtue of what it is, seems to be like the introvert hub of the city. And so if all of our people were here, they would be, everyone's scattered and everyone wants their own seat. And it's funny, the dynamic when people come in the prayer room, when it's going during the week, is I'll be playing or someone will be playing and one person's sitting there, one person's sitting there, and one person's sitting there. And then another introvert comes in like, oh no, all the seats are taken. And so they go into that little corner where the flags are at. And so it's just... For the Lord to begin to highlight community in us is a strange thing. And uh, Doree, she's on the board and on the teaching team with us. And uh, she brought a, a fresh focus of family. And we know it's the Lord because the introverts are the ones calling the whole community into a closeness of family and doing family and community together well. Uh, but this began to burn on my heart when we were traveling with Corey's team. We would see house of prayer after house of prayer after house of prayer. Uh, we'd see how our own was functioning. And we were bad at community. When we started, I was like, if you don't want to sit in an empty room and sing love songs to Jesus and legislate his will in the city for, you know, hours on end, then I just sayonara. Like, I don't have time for you unless you want to get on the prayer schedule and begin to dig and labor with us. And so we would have services, and we were just the most non-social group ever. We were bad at community. Lord began to shift my heart when I was traveling with Corey, and I would hear them long for community. Uh, as an outsider, every time we would go up to Kansas City, my wife and I 
would uh, feel like the community there was strong because our ties there were like to Corey, and he'd built strong community with where he was at, but he was lacking the community, and the spiritual fathers, uh, the leadership from spiritual fathers um, as he was laboring up there. And so as we got more familiar with them, they began opening up with some of the things that were going on at IHOP and just the lack of community. And this honestly, um, just as a, a, a logical thing in my mind, began to break my heart because I saw like, okay, I'm an introvert and I don't care about community, but I know, Lord, you love community. I can't deny it in scripture. If I really believe you're in the end time prayer movement, we shouldn't be bad at both. So I asked him because it began to prick me because I've realized how bad we are at community because we just, I don't care about it and I'm the top leader at the house of prayer. And so I asked Corey and Meredith just straight up, is there any house of prayer that you've seen in your travels because you've been to more places than I have that do the house of prayer well and community well? And they just shook their head and lament and said no. Places are either good at one at the detriment of the other. We've never seen anyone do both well. And that was about two years ago, and it just began to provoke me, like, this ought not be. This shouldn't be this way. We should be good at both. And so I brought a message during one of our services that was just a community message, and the closing in the end was, I don't know what to do. Help. I'm not good at the community thing. I know it's in Scripture. And with the new uh, focus on it, even this fall, as Doree began to speak and open up this topic of family and community to us, it's just been the simplicity of loving one another fervently from the heart and not trying to over-regimentize, regimentalize, reg- I don't know, some, some word, just over, just over-organize it, like, okay, we got these small groups, and we got these small groups leader. Just simple things, like make room on your calendar for each other, and get outside your personality preferences that you want to hang out with, generational preferences. Don't just hang out with people that you think can get you somewhere. Quit using each other and fall in love with one another, and so that's the season that, that we've been in, and so just to kind of set you up for this next statement and to give you clarity for where I'm, I'm at. I'm not impressed with titles, but sometimes they, they bring clarity on uh, just the foundation of thought where a person's coming from. And so I'm a total Wesleyan holiness guy with the charismatic flair. And uh, so I say that to say, like, I love the call of holiness in the scripture. I'm in love with the law of God. I agree with Psalm 19. Like, if you were paying attention to some of the lyrics of one of the songs that I, uh, the Lord put on my heart last summer, it's just an overflow of gush on the law. The law of the Lord is perfect. It enlightens my eyes. It restores the soul. Like, I love his law. I love his law. And so even in the New Testament, when we read the calls to holiness, um, not looking at it in a legalistic fashion, but letting it really flow from the first commandment. I love this stuff and I geek out over this stuff because we're in a generation that needs law to be established, to restore the soul, to enlighten the eyes in the midst of a generation where Jesus warned against that lawlessness is abounding and love is growing cold. John says, we know all sin is lawlessness. And so I love the law. Um, But in this new community focus, I begin to see how the call of holiness and scripture based on the overflow of the first commandment always leads us into fervent love for the brethren. And so turn with me to uh, Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. 
And I just want to uh, give one example of this. But I think it's something if you have this filter in place, when you begin to see the real calls to holiness, sometimes we ignore the call to holiness and then we focus on the call to love. Um, but it, once we see this whole plainly spelled out, I think we'll see the, the progression here. And so I just want to start in, in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered with the flesh, or suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. And I love this next phrase. I love it, and it needs to get back in our pulpits again. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Oh, my gosh. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was sitting with a man struggling with many different things. And, beloved, his hope is that Jesus can actually save him from his sin change him and make him another man. He doesn't want to deal in, with the muck and the mire where he's stuck. He's like, I want out of this. My hope has changed and I'm tired of going from leader to leader telling me I'm always gonna be like this, but Jesus will overlook it. His real hope has changed. And so, yes, I love the love of God. And I love all the good stuff about the thing too, but so many addicts we deal with, it's like, I really feel it's responsible to arm them with the vision of suffering in the flesh, to be able to cease from sin, to really crucify the flesh unto the renewing of the mind according to the word of God. Verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God, for it is time. For the time has already passed and is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. In all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them. There should be a clear demarcation between those who serve and those who don't. And the Lord said, I will distinguish between those who serve me and those who do not serve me in the last days. So that distinguishing is coming. And I think that's another important message that's got to be back on the lips of the church again. And so in verse 4, you see that distinguishing being, they're surprised you don't run with them. My friends who go to this church run with me. Why are you so uptight? They're surprised that you don't run with them into the same excess of dissipation and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Oh my gosh, but it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. He is ready to judge the living and the dead. We put Romans 2, 4 back into its context. We realize that's in the middle of a warning that if you reject his kindness, wrath is being stored up for you. It's sobering, uh, sobering scripture, but being able to understand like he's kind and he's giving us a space to repent, but he is ready to judge. No more paperwork needs to be filed. He's ready right now. And the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And that's not Yahweh, it's Elohim. So the fool says in his heart, there is no God that will hold me to account. There is no God that will judge me. So you can believe in a higher power. You can believe in, in a uh, Jesus that we've made in our own image. But the fool says in his heart, there's no God that will judge me and hold me to a higher standard. And hold me to account for the deeds that I did in my body. But Jesus says, I'm coming back to repay every man according to the deeds that they've done in the body. 
Verse six, for the gospel for this purpose has been preached to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Why, Peter? For the purpose of prayer. Verse eight, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Each one has received a special gift, so employ it in using one another. No one's following with me. Employ it in serving one another. You've received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Again, serving, not using. I want to back back up to verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sin. You see the shift that it makes that the overflow of a holy life should affect the community and build family. I also think it releases a security over individuals so that we're actually able to come together in a new way. I mean, isn't this the mark of the early church? is it didn't matter what your background was, what your race, what your uh, previous religious creed was, is they had a love internally that the outsiders wanted in. I love justice ministries, and, and brother, don't hear me like the wrong way when I say this. I love the justice ministries and getting outside of the four walls of the church, but beloved, it's how we love one another that begins to attract them. They wanted to come because they saw how they were taking their meals, how they were doing life and community and family together. And so when we're able to serve one another, even before I would submit the justice ministries in that way, I think the justice ministry will be accomplished with a greater vision, a greater authority, a greater anointing resting on it when we begin to walk into those neighborhoods and walk into those situations. So many times I think we put the cart before the horse. We do this with evangelism too. We're so quick to just raise up people with a quick training and send them out on the streets before their hearts are burning. But when in, in so doing, we're raising up pundits, experts with opinions in a field to hit the streets. But Jesus said, Terry, and wait until I make you a witness. Pundits are on the news all day, but the witness is called to the stand and to testify what they've seen, heard, taste, touched, handled, eternal life. So anyway, the, the call to holiness shifting for fervent love for one another. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sin. I kind of want to, for the rest of the time, just look at that phrase. Love covers a multitude of sin. Um, before I get into my notes, I had an amazing dad. And this was like his guiding principle as a young man growing up underneath his roof was he's like, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm probably going to sin against my children and against my family. So I'm going to put the priority on loving well so, those, so that my love will cover my multitude of mistakes and sin. And I thank the Lord for that example, and it's been a guiding example just in my own family, and I'm, I'm thankful for that legacy. Um, but in, in looking in kind of more the academic realm, 
um, I found a, uh, some focuses on that phrase that it, it, it was a funny thing. It, it, they all seemed to kind of miss the mark to me. Um, but I'm going to throw out this statement, and I'll pick that back up again. But uh, when it says, because love covers a multitude of sin, um, I think that love preserves a righteous community testimony as it releases grace over accusation. I believe this is really what it means to have an ongoing ministry of reconciliation, even in our midst, is that love preserves a righteous community testimony as it releases grace over the accusation. Um, the testimony is important. Our individual testimonies are important. Our corporate testimonies as local houses, as a citywide church, is important because there's a real accuser accusing us day and night before the throne, accusing the throne to us day and night, and accusing us to each other constantly. And so being able to cast him out of his authoritative place by the blood of the Lamb, it says in Revelation, and the word of our testimony. The word of our testimony is not our story from 20 years ago of when God pulled me off the streets. The, our, the word of our testimony is what is the witness of your life right now? What is the fruit your life is producing right now? And with that living testimony and the blood of the Lamb, we can cast the accuser out. And uh, if I, I think we see an example of the importance of the testimony and uh, what a powerful, even just source of protection it is when we look at numbers. Everyone knows Balaam's donkey, right? I have a t-shirt being made. Jonathan's making it for me. It's after one of my most underwhelming YouTube videos, but it's called Not My Precedent. So many times you hear like, Balaam, if God can use a donkey, he can use anyone. Like that should be terrifying, actually. So Balaam's donkey is not my precedent, but we come... We come to the story of Balaam, and he's hired by Balak to curse the nation of Israel. And I grew up in circles that tended to focus on the portion of, you know, the devil can't curse what God has blessed, and then that's the end of the story. But Balaam actually tells Balak why he can't curse Israel. He says in uh, Numbers 23, 21, he says, there's no iniquity found in Jacob. There's no wickedness in Israel. And yeah, we see them in the wilderness flip-flopping, but they actually just came out of a time of repentance and walking in a righteous testimony before the Lord in that season. And so he could not cast a curse over them because of their testimony. So what does he tell the king to do? Hey, just send your women in their midst intermingle, then I won't even have to curse them. They'll fall into sin, and the judgment of their own God will be against them. Problem solved. And so it's important that as we look at how does love cover, that we've got to be jealous over our testimony. We've got to be jealous over the testimony of our own lives, jealous over our corporate testimony. If my brother stumbles, how do I handle that? So again, how does love cover a multitude of sins while preserving the righteous testimony is the tension I think needs to be answered. And I think the answer is in restoration. And uh, again, the two common areas that I found in looking in commentaries and some of the more academic side is um, a lot of guys would say, this obviously doesn't mean atonement. 
fine, even though it says in John, like, if you forgive sins, they'll be forgiven. If you retain them, their sins will be retained. But just for the sake of their argument, like, fine, it's, it, I'm, we're not talking about atonement. And so guys immediately go to an, a, another statement where I just, I can't get on board with, where it's like, so we overlook it, which also is not a picture of what grace is. What, what is grace? It's come to bring salvation to every man, teaching us to deny ungodliness, live soberly and righteously in this present age, and looking for the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grace produces a restoration and a real change in you. If we teach it like a cloak of invisibility, like a Harry Potter trinket, we're teaching witchcraft and we're not teaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so I would just submit, like it's, it's not an overlooking. Love doesn't cover a multitude of sins because it overlooks them, but it's involved in the restoration process. Uh, there's an amazing example of this in Zechariah 3. And uh, I was at the one thing, and uh, Alan Hood closed with this passage. If you didn't watch the IHOP one thing this year, many of the sessions were amazing. Um, it's worth it to go through that and, and, and muscle through that. Um, I know the format was different, and I heard good and negative feedback about the format, but I really believe that the Lord was in it, and there's a lot of uh, things, Jonathan, I, I think even resonate with the vision here and, and, and what we're talking about here, but it's just fresh on my mind because we've been walking this out, so when they did it as a uh, kind of just a more global leader, it seemed like it opened a door, clarified stuff, and gave greater grace for us to be able to, to walk into things with them as they're walking into it. Uh, but Alan Hood closed with Zechariah 3. And uh, before I start going through Zechariah 3, in his day, the people were actually supposed to be building the temple. Um, you could put house of prayer in there. Uh, I'd put house of prayer in there. They're synonymous in my mind. Uh, Joshua was supposed to be le leading this building project. But everyone was living in compromise because of his compromised leadership. And so the temple was being neglected. Uh, Zechariah is the prophet. He's the one who knows the most about Joshua's issues. And I mean, we even see that with the clear call to repentance right out the gate in chapter 1. Uh, Zechariah is calling the nation, calling Joshua to repent because now's the time to begin to build the house of prayer. And you've been living in compromise and you're not building the house of prayer. And so we come to chapter 3 of Zechariah. It says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. <laughs> Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Zechariah is the prophet. He's got all like the inside info on this guy. He can, quote, read his mail, knows everything that's going on. So when he hears the accusation from the enemy, how many of you know the temptation many times in movements that we're associated with is we hear the accusation and we align with the accusation and we begin to say, yep, that's right. Lord's going to judge them. He's going to take them out of the pulpit. And we just kind of sit back and wait for that to happen. Like I told you, they were screwing up behind closed doors. They were doing this. I knew his issues. Holy Spirit told me. 
Satan standing at Joshua's right hand to accuse him. But the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. This is a staggering station, or statement because Satan, the father of lies, was speaking the truth. He was speaking a true thing in this situation. His garments were filthy standing before the angel. And so Joshua had lost his testimony. And here's the accuser right there because he works day and night. The devil's a hard worker, and he's one of the best theologians in the church, too. So he's right there with the true accusation, do something, Lord, you're just. Joshua's clothed with filthy garments, standing before the angel. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, Yahweh's speaking now, to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, I have taken your iniquity from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, so now uh, Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, is getting involved in the restoration process. He says, then I said, let him put a clean turban on his head. So the community is taking away the iniquity, taking away the dirty garments. And here's Zechariah crying out, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. I think it's interesting how the angel of the Lord was standing there and he gave a proclamation to the community. It was a community response to come and restore such a one caught in a trespass in a spirit of gentleness by removing those dirty garments. And then the prophet's proclamation, put a clean turban on his head, put clean robes on him. You see how this is not an overlooking of the sin, but it's addressing it according to the love and the kindness of God. And after this is, after he's clothed with the clean garments, the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways. Oh my goodness. I think one of the most powerful words in all of Scripture that needs to be restored back into our language is the word if. Do might be second. If and do. That's legalistic, Dave. <laughs> Thus says the Lord of hosts. I'm just using biblical language, guys. Can I just use biblical language if and do? Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts and I will grant you free access among those who are standing there. I love the call, the restoration, the kindness of God being released even though the accusation was true, the community response, the response of the prophet to not get into gripe mode, complain mode, or just get into, see, I told you, I told you he had issues, but actually be involved in the restoration and the healing and the cleansing of this man so that the project could actually go on and they could build the work of the Lord. They could build the house of the prayer and their generation. And then the Lord's like, okay, you've been given clean garments. Don't squander them. I love verse 8 too. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends. I love that. You and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, 
they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I'm going to send my servant the branch. Uh, that's the same Hebrew word there used in Isaiah of the children you've given me are for signs and wonders. This prophet and his friend were for a sign and a wonder to do the works of him whose works were finished from the foundation of the world to release grace over this leader instead of accusation, but to come build up, be a part of the restoration. Um, I want to go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, and then I'll wrap it up there. In chapter 1, 22, this has just been a life verse for me, and you see the same progression, holiness overflowing into love, fervent love for one another. Verse 22, it says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Fervently love, sincere love, without hypocrisy, without pretense. I call pretense the glory mask. When you don't go deep with anyone, you don't have real conversation because you're afraid or because of insecurities or you're in an environment where leadership doesn't foster a safety in those type places where you don't bring up your issues. There's no safety to talk, to trust, to go deep with one another. But no, especially in word of faith circles, I, it's easy for me to see that because I, uh, I, I grew up mostly there but it's, it's like as soon as you take the glory mask off and be able to have real talk with people, it's like, well, that's not faith. Like I'm hurt and I'm wounded. I'm trying to speak so that I can find healing so that my faith can grow to greater heights. We've got to give each other permission to not be okay. And that's a part of sincere love and loving one another per, uh, fervently. And so loving one another from the place where we're not trying to make a falsehood out of who we are and wearing that mask. Um, fervently also refers to the intensity with which we are to reach out to one another. And I mean, this is an intense word. This Greek word fervently here is only used two other times in the New Testament. And so to give you the examples, this word was used in Acts twelve fifteen when Peter was in jail and fervent prayer was lifted up. And we know the effectual fervent prayer that availed much in that situation. Peter was released from prison. It was a different type of prayer. Also, we see this word in Luke twenty-two forty-four. Being in agony, Jesus was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood. Some of us might be familiar with the passage of, you haven't yet resisted sin to the point of bloodshed. How about we reach out to each other? Have we reached out to each other and to go deep and build these relationships even to the point of shedding blood, even to the point of bearing your insecurities and bearing your heart with one another? And so I, th I, I think just in, in light of this, it's like our, our call really is to speak well with one another and not agree with the accuser, even though he might be right. To serve one another and not use each other. I see this, I, I, I've seen this almost nonstop, not in 10 days, because you're amazing. 
Jonathan, <laughs> but I, I see this often where you have younger leaders submitting to older leaders because they're going to get me somewhere and get me to my calling, and we use them as stepping stones to get to where I want to go. And sometimes the older leaders will use the younger leaders or those that they're surrounding themselves with also as stepping stones. And we're, there's just this constant manipulation, this unspoken manipulation between one another because, well, the Lord told me I was going to be a prophet, apostle, bishop to the nations. And that if they don't recognize that, then I'm just going to kind of manipulate my way behind the scenes. Or, you know, I was ordained in this church like 10 years ago, and so I should be the one with the microphone. And so I'm going to manipulate my way up the thing. And then insecure leaders always just psh, 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 don't foster environments of freedom. And so you have this tension coming from both sides, and we just don't trust each other. But being able to really foster environments of safety, true feedback, accountability, and those aren't bad words. You have feedback and accountability in the context of love and humility. You'll be surprised at the depths of healing that you can grow to. And I, I, I say that having seen it in this fresh focus on family and having great vision for where this is going, I am excited. I am extremely excited about where this is going. And so put this kind of fervent energy into building each other up, restoring with gentleness those caught in a trespass, Galatians 6.1. And live from the filter of not just I want you, but I need you. Like realizing like I need you. I need the body of Christ. I need people. Even though I'm an introvert, like I need you. And I think uh, Stuart Greaves during the leadership conference brought up one of the just the piercing examples of I want you versus I need you uh, when he says, you know, if you're planning this event and then you bring in, you know, this church and this church because you want diversity at the last minute and you've never invited them to be a part of the planning, you're not saying in that moment, I need you. You're saying, I want you. I want your platform, and I want to use you even for diversity's sake or these different things. But really living from that filter of, I need you. I'm here to serve you. The leaders that, I mean, you look at Paul's life and his call as an apostle. He laid down his life, and he was a servant. Jesus was given all authority, as Gaylord uh, had presents in, in, in his sessions when he's able to be with us. The one who has all authority and had authority to lay his life down and pick it back up again laid his life down and was a servant of all and washed the feet of the apostles. Lord, I love you. Thank you for your loving kindness towards us. Thank you for your glory and your beauty. Thank you for your beautiful word. I love your word, Lord. I love your presence. Thank you for what you're doing in my city. ask you to just increase our capacity and the capacity of my friends to be able to just have more energy even to continue to press in and not miss anything that you're doing in just these few days. Lord, give us grace to lock in to be able to receive from you. I ask for great grace over my friend Jonathan and Zayim. As they continue to lead us, we're expectant, Lord, and we love you. Amen.